Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Mackenzie campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. It's great to have you here with uh, us tonight. As Eden said, I want to extend a warm welcome uh, to each and every single one of you. Uh, I'd like it to be noted that uh, on grand final night where the Broncos are playing, they decided to get the Victorian uh, to do the message because they realized he doesn't care what happens tonight. And the real grand final was yesterday. So, uh, you know, he's just happy to be up here and give it a crack. I also have no regard for the kickoff time. So you're in for a long one. I'm planning on knocking off about 6.50. I've got a lot to say and no one's here to stop me. So <laughs> let's get into it. I recently watched a movie called The Swimmers, which is a little bit ironic for a guy who can't swim 50 meters and literally cannot float, okay? Now, this isn't a movie about, uh, you know, some aquatic feat. It's the story of two sisters who swum for the Syrian national team as teenagers when the regime fell apart and war broke out. See, the situation becomes so dire that they actually seek to leave Syria, relocate to Germany, and then by some legal loophole, because they're under 18 years of age, be able to reunite with their family when they get there. Ultimately, they become refugees, and they travel throughout some harrowing situations. The pinnacle being they're promised a boat from Turkey to Greece. They wait for the guys to bring the boat and all of a sudden these four guys run down the hill with a bag and some like oxygen tanks and then get to the beach and blow up this inflatable boat, put the motor on the back and say, you all get in, get in, get in. There's 20 people, a mother carrying a small child, like a baby, like months old, get in this boat and they're like, turn the motor on, drive slow. And they're like, no, 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 this this can't be it. And they're like, yep, this is it. This is your boat. Get in and go. Just head that way. They're like, you're not even coming. No, I'm not coming with you. Just go. They get out of the ocean. Uh, The water's, you know, it gets a bit rocky. Water starts coming into the boat. There's 20 people in it. It starts to kind of sink and start to fill up. People are getting anxious. People are screaming. They're crying. They're praying. The baby's in tears. And these two girls realize that they need to do something quite brave and heroic and get out of the boat and swim next to it for the next three and a half hours so that this boat can float and get everyone else to safety. Watching this scene in particular, my heart is heavy and I look over to my right and I turn to Rachel, my wife, and she's in tears. And understandably, the fear that these people must have been feeling. I mean, imagine that mother holding a child thinking, I'm looking for a better life and wondering if instead their lives will be lost at sea. Now, this isn't a political comment about refugees, but rather the question that Rachel and I were left with was, what can we do? What can we do when we're shown to our face that kind of suffering and distress that other people are living with and experiencing? Particularly these days when we're inundated with this suffering and the news of it, 
in a way like we've never been before. You know, we just open up our feeds and we hear about all of the latest things that are going on in the world around us. We uh, not only get live updates there, but there's whole TV channels dedicated to 24-7 news. If anyone reads a newspaper here, maybe some of you, or maybe you've just seen one lying around, you've heard about it, you've never read one, but you've heard about it. Those things are just full of these kind of similar stories. We have podcasts that we listen to filling us in on issues that we've never heard about before. And then we even have our friends filling us in on whatever it is that is their latest thing that they're aware of or that they care about too. And it can be intense sometimes. These aren't little things we hear about. It's wars, it's terror attacks, it's refugee issues, it's families losing loved ones, and that's just on the global scale. Then we get confronted with the pain in those around us. We find about someone in our uni course who they themselves was a refugee, made it to Australia, but is struggling with their studies. They've got issues with English as their second language or they're caring for their family and they're finding it hard to manage. Or the reality that some of us feel when we walk through the city, walking past multiple people who are homeless, lying on the concrete, asleep, dirty, and with a sign asking for help. And even some of us are just dealing with the grief that our friends are going through because maybe they've just lost someone that they love and care about to cancer. How do you respond to all of this? And again, we look around us and we see a whole variety of options. We've seen some pretty crazy protests from people throwing our orange paint onto the pitch in the ashes to try and get some attention about things that they care about. From things to being involved in politics to donating to causes. And even sometimes on the far end, just this sense of nihilism that's just like, you know what, let's just quietly resign ourselves to the fact that the world's messed up, this is all gonna happen and there's not much you can do about it at all. See, the challenge is when we see this in the world around us, we shouldn't just necessarily ask what are other people doing, but what should we as Christians, as people who follow Christ, do? How should we respond to these kind of issues and situations that we're feeling? You know, is the Christian response to protest, to donate, to get into politics, to just accept that it happens and kind of go, you know what, let's just hope for salvation because we're all gonna die in the end, so God will make it better. Peace out, right? Like, is that kind of our response? See, tonight I want to look at a story in Luke chapter 7, just verses 11 to 15. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to open it up. But I think it gives us a a really wonderful template, a really wonderful uh, example of what it looks like for us to deal with the suffering of other people and how we can respond to it and be Christians, Jesus followers, in the midst of that. So you turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 15. We're going to read verses 11, 12 first. It says this, soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nine, and a large crowd followed him. Now, just for those who are uh, not reading in their Bibles, the passage before, Jesus has just performed another miracle, but now he's continuing on. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son and a large crowd from the village was with her. That's right, we're gonna deal with what Jesus does in the face of um, death. You know, just a, a light topic like death and suffering. And it's in these situations we can see that he's dealing just from a surface level with a widow who has lost her son. But let's unpack who this widow is and what she's feeling at that time. Obviously she's a widow, if you don't know what that means, it means her husband has passed. So this is not the first loved one that this woman has lost. Now, I get teary at the thought of my wife even dying. I can't imagine what the grief must be like to have actually lost your partner. 
Couple that with the fact that she has just lost her only son as well. And they always have that saying that a parent should never have to bury a child. So this grief, on top of that, I imagine, would be crushing. There's more to this, though, that we don't understand and we miss. This son dying is probably fresh. This grief is, is, is quite new to her. See, back in those days, they didn't quite have the same processes for dealing uh, with someone who's passed and preserving the body. Almost certainly, this son died that day at work in the morning, or he died last night from some sickness. Most likely, this grief is less than 24 hours old. This is fresh. She's just lost her son. Add on this that not only is this grief heavy, but it's mixed with an outlook of hopelessness. Now, this is not because she's someone who struggles with depression or just has a real pessimistic attitude. Her outlook is not positive. Now, in those days, only the men really worked. Only the men were really educated. Only the men really had rights. And if you've done the math, she's lost her husband and she just lost her only son. The legitimate questions she has are who is going to provide for me and who is going to protect me. Notice as well that the text says it's her only son, not her only child. There's every chance that this woman has daughters to provide for as well. That's the situation that she's in right now. Imagine the grief that she's feeling, compounded with the hopeless outlook for the future and any family that she may have to provide for as well. It's a dire outlook. This woman is at risk of abuse, manipulation, poverty, lacking food, a place to stay, and dying prematurely. That's the reality of what this woman is dealing with while she's also dealing with the grief of losing her only son. So how does Jesus respond in the face of such suffering and injustice? Does he protest the system that oppresses women at that time and tell them to overthrow it, give women the right to vote, give women the right to work? No, he doesn't. And does he donate money on whatever their equivalent was to GoFundMe? No, it doesn't seem to be there. Did he just walk past with resignation that everyone dies and sometimes people just get screwed by the system? I don't know. Did he maybe walk past and go, well, this is why I'm dying for people's sin, because it's going to be hell on earth for her, but hopefully she'll get to spend eternity in heaven. You know, like, what's Jesus' attitude in all of this? In the next three verses, we're going to see three key lessons about how Jesus responds and how we're called to imitate him. Verse 13, we pick it up, it says, when the Lord saw her, now I wanna quickly just make a comment here. This isn't in like the main points, but just notice this. When the Lord saw her, one of the first things we have to recognize is we have to have a willingness to see the suffering of other people. A lot of the time we just uh, are happy to be ignorant and blind and pretend like it's not there. The Lord saw her. We have to be willing to see what is going on in the lives of other people. Then we see this, it says, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. And then he walked over to the coffin and touched it and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And then the dead boy sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. See, the first thing that happens is Jesus emotionally connects with this situation. His heart overflowed with compassion. Now what is compassion? If I was to ask you, how would you describe compassion? James Kirby in his book, Choose Compassion, says that most people see compassion as this. 
kindness, understanding, tenderness, empathy, and maybe warmth. Now, he would say compassion can be those things, but it's so much more than that. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says compassion is a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. A conscious a consciousness of the distress of others. And Jesus in the above story is very aware of what this woman is going through. That she's suffering emotional anguish, financial distress, physical discomfort, and the overwhelming sense of fear and hopelessness about her future. And Jesus does have a desire to alleviate her suffering. And we can see by the end of the story that he does. You know, he raises the son back to life again, gives him back to his mother. The kicker for me, though, in this is that in this miracle, there's a large crowd following Jesus of his disciples, and there's a large crowd going along with this funeral procession. And not one of them sees Jesus and asks him to raise the boy from the dead. I think it's a funny little note because I often think that we believe that Jesus only did miracles in response to other people asking him to or begging him to or pleading with him to or going, please, 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 or sending someone else on their behalf to go and ask Jesus to do it. But this is a miracle when no one asks Jesus to do anything. And I often believe that, that for us, because we think that Jesus only ever performs a miracle because of the pleading and the asking and, and, you know, the, and the faith of other people, we have this kind of same attitude in our own relationship with him. We so often think, you know, it's like, God, I, I, Jesus, I just, I just need you to show up in my life. And we beg and we plead. And, and hear me clearly, we should be praying and asking Jesus for the things that are on our heart. But sometimes we tell ourselves this story that we haven't prayed hard enough. Or we, or we haven't meant it seriously, or we haven't cried enough tears, or, or whatever it is. But what I love about this story is that, that Jesus does it because his heart compels him to. See, Jesus does it because he's compelled by compassion. He's, com he's compelled at the very core of who he is. See, compassion is this thing uh, in their language that's linked with the emotion in the bowels. You know, like just like deep in the gut. I know, what a fantastic place to feel emotions, right? But it's this idea of like the bowels were the center of the human being. It's where you would feel your deepest emotions. You know, and, and this is where Jesus is feeling it. He's, he's feeling it in his deepest emotions. The point of all of this is that Jesus responds not necessarily to someone's ask or someone's pleading or because there's enough faith in this story, but because he wants to. Jesus responds and acts out of his emotions. Now, I want you to notice that it's not just a sense of tenderness, kindness, or understanding. It's not just puppy dog eyes like, oh, I'm so sorry, and a quivering lip. I mean, Jesus even, to be fair, it's pretty rude, walks up to this lady and tells her to stop crying. I mean, imagine that. Her son just died 24 hours ago. And he's like, hey, cut it out. Imagine walking to a funeral and being like, hey, everyone, I know you're grieving, but stop. Cut it out. It's a bit much, right? Like, come on, let's pull ourselves together, right? You'd imagine, like, everyone kind of looks at him. He's like, what are you, like, what are you doing saying this to a woman who has just lost her son. But the reason Jesus is telling her to stop crying is because he knows that he's about to do something. 
about the very thing that is causing her tears. He alleviates the suffering that she's experienced. And again, not because someone asked him to, but because compassion compelled him to. Now, we can sometimes give our emotions a hard time in our faith and in Christianity because we sometimes think, you know, we, we, we listen to these, um, these uh, sermons on this idea that the heart is deceitful, you know, above all else, don't trust it, you know, like all these kind of things. And look, to an aspect, that's true. Our wants and our desires and our, and our feelings can be deceitful. But God didn't give us emotions to try and trick us all the time, to be like, oh man, I got feelings for this person. Maybe this is a test by God, you know? Like, God, God didn't give us these emotions to try and confuse us. He gave them to us to help guide us and lead us in wise counsel with them. Craig Rochelle says this. He says that knowledge leads to conclusions, but emotions lead to actions. Most of what we say and do is based on our feelings. We respond out of fear or anxiety or love or hope. It's the feelings that often lead to our actions, See, compassion is what compelled Christ to act in this story. It was his emotions. It's okay for us to emotionally get involved in the story of other people. It's okay for us to be bleeding hearts. It's okay for us to shed some tears about what's happening in the world around us. It's okay for our emotions to move us. There's every chance that God is the one doing the moving. What we find hard to comprehend in this is that Jesus is fully God. Now, the last time I got up here to preach, I also said that we struggle to comprehend the fact that Jesus is fully human, but I stand by both of those statements. Uh, The best way to think about it is that there are some stories that we read in the Bible where we can really understand Jesus' humanity. And there's other stories in the Bible where it's really easy for us to understand Jesus' divinity. Now, you know, the stories that we kind of think of, like Jesus walking on water, in that kind, it's like, oh yeah, Jesus was God, right? That's why he walked on water. And we forget Jesus was also fully human. This is one of those stories where we can kind of really focus in on the fact that Jesus is fully human. He felt compassion. We understand that. We feel compassion. We know it. We feel it. But we also forget that Jesus is fully God. He raises this boy from the dead. But the coolest part about holding those two truths together in this story is this. If Jesus is fully human and fully God and he feels compassion for his people, for this woman, then it is also true that God in himself feels compassion for his people, humanity. See, in this passage in Hosea 11, verse 8, it says this, God kind of expressing his heart to his people. They're in the midst of this back and forth of exile. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you've probably heard that a bit. Israel followed God. Things were good. They didn't follow God. Things were bad. They went to exile. God is wrestling with his people. And again, they're in another season where God is like, look, you've forgotten me. You've neglected me. There's going to be consequences to your actions. But as he speaks to his people through the prophet Hosea, he says this, oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboam? My heart is torn within me. Notice this phrase is the same one that Jesus has towards this woman. And my compassion overflows. See, while his people are in exile, God's heart overflows with compassion for them. He sees their suffering and he does something about it. 
Immediately after that verse, in verses nine to 11, it says this, this is God's response to his compassion. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I'm the holy one living among you, and I will not come to destroy. For someday, the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion, and when I roar, my people will return, trembling from the west like a flock of birds, and they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again." See, it's his compassion that causes him to hold back his anger. It's his compassion that won't let his people be destroyed. It's his compassion that will cause him to bring his people home. And while he did this in the story of Israel physically, he has also done this for each of us. See, it was his compassion that while we wandered away from him, while we lived our own lives, lived in our own sin, that he did not abandon us that he did not give us up to be destroyed. Rather, he sent his son Jesus to come and live amongst us, to live the perfect life that we never could so that he could die the death that we deserved so that when Jesus died, he could roar like a lion, defeating sin and removing it from us as far as the east is from the west. That he had overthrown the oppressive power of our spiritual Egypt, death, and we can have the ability to return home from our sin and come back to him for eternity. See, compassion is what compelled God to act in our story. The challenge is in all of this that Jesus calls us to imitate his compassion, to be moved by the pain of others, to embrace the hurting and participate in relieving the suffering of the world. In Luke chapter seven, verse, uh, chapter six, verse 36, just a few pages before, it says, be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. And there's a strong scriptural argument for the importance of this commandment. See, in 1 John 3, 16 to 18, it says this, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, How can God's love be in that person? See, John embeds our call to compassion in the example that Jesus gave us on the cross, that we ought to make sacrifices for our brothers and sisters. Even going so far as to say that, um, you know, God, no, hang on, I've lost a page, my apologies. With those haunting final few words, if someone shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? It's a challenging line, isn't it? If you don't show any compassion, How can God's love be in that person? And I love this idea, it shows compassion. It's not feels compassion, it shows compassion. There must be tangible actions that seek to alleviate the suffering and distress of our brothers and sisters in Christ. James 1, 26 to 27 in the message translation or paraphrase says this, anyone who sets themselves up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father is this. Reach out to the homeless and the loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from this godless world. Well, this one doesn't use the literal word compassion, it's the same idea. Except while John seems to suggest that the call for us to have compassion is for our brothers and sisters, James says that this sense of compassion is for all that actually real religion reaches out to the homeless and the loveless, or as the uh, NIV puts it, orphans and widows. 
irrespective of their faith. That that's the test of a real relationship, a real religious experience with God. Not what we say, but what we do for the down and out. And then finally in Isaiah chapter one, verses 11 to 17, it says this, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord. I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fatted, the fat of the fattened calf. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Now, for those who don't know much about the Old Testament law, this is a whole thing that you had to do to kind of please God, to, you know, to purify your sins. It wasn't just God is a real meat eater who's just like, please give me as much, you know, beef, lamb. You know, like it's not that. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's a recognition of the system at the time. See, when you come to worship me, who asked you to parade through my courts with all of your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I cannot stand them. This is where it gets pretty heavy. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you may offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. It's a fair old freight train of a passage, isn't it? God's telling his people, I'm sick of your inauthentic worship services. I'm sick of your sacrifices. I'm sick of the way that you've adopted practices that are more from the culture around you, even though you try and somehow make it about me. He even goes so far as to say he won't listen to their prayers, which is a pretty big call. His solution, though, is wash yourselves and be clean. How? Remove your sin, give up evil. Then he says, learn to do good. How? What does good look like? Seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphans, give the widows rights. That's how he tells the nation of Israel to get back on track. See, compassion and compassionate acts are a key part of God's heart for his people. And it's clear in reading all of this that it's actually not enough for us to just have a passion for Christ. We must also have compassion for people. These two things go together. It's not just enough to have a passion for Christ, we must also have compassion for people. Henry Nouwen says it like this, action with and for those who suffer is the concrete expression of the compassionate life and the final criterion or principle of being a Christian. See, compassion is what must compel us to act in the story of others. So the question is, what does it look like for you and I to act compassionately in the story of others? What does that look like? Jesus gives us a little example in this story. He does something very simple. We can think about this idea that Jesus raises this guy from the dead and Ben, you surely that can't be the simple action you're talking about. No, I'm not. That's a pretty grand scale significant thing to do. But Jesus does something else before that that we probably haven't even noticed because it is so small scale, but it was equally significant at the time. It says this. It says Jesus was filled with compassion. His heart overflowed with compassion. He told the mother not to cry and then he walked over to the coffin and touched it. That doesn't seem like a big deal, but at those times, the coffin, and coffin is is an interesting word. Most likely, it was like a hospital, you know, like 
know, one of those things when players like injure themselves in the soccer and they like kind of pick them up and they like carry them off and like, all right, mate, come on, like the act's over now. He's got his card, you got the free kick, you're not injured, right? You know, like that kind of thing where they carry him off like a stretcher. That's most likely what this guy was on, on people's shoulders, and he was probably wrapped up, just laid out on top. That's the coffin that most likely he was dealing with. The coffin was considered unclean because this was a dead body laying on it. Now, to be unclean in those days was to basically have to purify yourself before you were then able to go back into the temple and into the worshiping community. You were considered dirty and unclean, and you could make other people dirty and unclean around you. Jesus was willing to touch that which other people considered to be unclean. That's the key thing. He walks over to the coffin and he touches it. It's an act that showed his willingness to identify with the situation and not back away from it. He wasn't scared by it, he wasn't intimidated by it. And the thing here for us is that actually the realization is that perhaps the best thing we can do is offer a compassionate shoulder or listening ear to people in need. Because this kind of touch often reaches below the skin and meets the pain of a hurting heart. Let me give you an example from my life. When I was uh, 22, uh, I uh, came up from uh, freezing cold Ballarat to a beautiful sunny Tweed Heads for a youth ministry convention. Now, I know you Brisbaneers are probably like, why would you go to Tweed Heads for a convention? But uh, when you're a Victorian, basically anything on the Gold Coast is God's country. And so you're like, wow, this sounds amazing. We get to go and learn about youth ministry and be at a real beach, you know, like it was a pretty good deal. But uh, we were too young to get a hire car, right, because we were under 25, and also we were too poor. Uh, and there were six of us, it would have been a minivan. No one wants to be in a minivan at a youth ministry conference. That's not really cool either. So we decided that we would walk everywhere because also Tweed Heads is like that big, right? Like it's tiny. Uh, but we were walking around everywhere, and uh, throughout our trip and, uh, you know, and wandering around, we uh, ran into this, it sounds wrong, but we ran into, we bumped into a homeless man, uh, his name, I can't remember, so we're gonna call him Darren uh, for the purposes of this story. Uh, but we ran into this guy named Darren, and uh, you know, we were in like the youth ministry convention high, right? Like we're like, man, we just love Jesus, love God, we're gonna love people. There's a homeless man, we know exactly what to do. We're gonna get him some food and some drink and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he had a trolley where all his possessions were in. So we're like, man, this guy can really carry a lot of stuff, this is great. So we'd like, we'd buy a slab of water or whatever. Because there were six of us, a couple of us would go and get the food and the others would kind of stay with Darren and chat with him. And uh, during these conversations, uh, some of my friends, they were you know, finding out these details, like for Darren, he'd been on the streets for you know, a, a few years now, but he'd lost contact with his family. And you know, most likely, we didn't get into the details, but he probably contributed to that. Like he's someone who potentially paid, played a part in or there were some actions that he uh, participated in that had some consequences, but he'd been cut off from his family. So he had no family, no people, he was regularly uh, you know, having conversation with no real relationships around him. And so my friends realized pretty quickly that while it was great that we were getting Darren some food, getting him some water, there was something kind of more that Darren needed than just his physical needs being met. See, Darren's probably someone that we would kind of genuinely consider unclean. Literally, in one sense, he probably hadn't had a shower in ages. He had a little bit of an odor about him. But also someone socially a little bit unclean. You know, normally for people who are homeless, we kind of, you know, do the little like, look straight ahead, you know, kind of see him out of the corner of our eye, just pretend like they're not there, kind of keep going. And imagine how that must feel 
having people intentionally look away and walk past you without giving you the time of day. Or even most of the time when they do get you something, it's very quickly like, oh, there's an apple, and then move on. No name, no conversation, no story. So my friends decided, they were like, you know what, I think we should invite him for dinner. So a few of my mates, the next time we saw him, they went up and they're like, look, Darren, look, uh, we would love to invite you to come and have grilled with us. He said yes, and off we went to grilled. And uh, it was pretty cool rocking up to grilled. Um, you know, been like, this is gonna be great, this is really cool. But it got complicated pretty quick. We walked up to grilled and we're like, oh, okay, like, come on in. And he's like, oh, I've got my, I've got my trolley with all of his stuff. And we're like, oh, okay. And I've never, you've never had to consider it before, right? But then when all of your possessions are in your trolley, you don't wanna leave it anywhere. You don't just be like, oh, I'll just put it over the road. I'll come over here. You, you want to keep an eye on it, right? We get the luxury of just being like, I'll lock the door, leave it all in my house and go. So all of a sudden, we're there talking with the grilled stuff. We're like, um, we're probably going to need to sit outside. They're like, oh, okay. Like, and we're going to need you to clear some tables because we need to get his trolley in so that it can be kind of enclosed in the area and he doesn't have to worry about it and no one can steal anything from it because he's worried about losing his possessions losing everything that he's got. But throughout that night, some of my friends were great. They're just, you know, they're brilliant people. They were talking with him, asking great questions. We're hearing his story about how he was an engineer and he'd worked really hard, but some stuff happened. His family fell apart, all these kind of things. But we're telling stories. He's telling stories. We're laughing together. We're reading. We're enjoying it. And for that moment, Darren was invited to sit around a table with six other people and be treated like everyone else. That night, we learned about Darren's life. We learned about who he was. We didn't find him a permanent place to live. We didn't get to facilitate reconciliation with his family, but we did get to be a compassionate community, connecting with someone who's often ignored, walked past, and treated like the less than the rest of us. It's a simple thing that we hope made a significant difference in Darren's life. The outcome was this happened because some of my friends were willing to let their heart be gripped with compassion. And they acted however they could in their life to help someone have a little bit of suffering alleviated. And that's how you can live your life. It's how Christ invites us to live our lives. With whatever it is that we're doing, we do it with compassion because we follow a compassionate God. He's moved at the very core of his heart by the suffering of humanity. And while he's done away with our greatest suffering, sin and death, he asks us to be the tangible experience of his compassion today. That might be stopping to have a conversation with a homeless person and buying them something that they really need, not just what we think they need. It could be helping a mature age student who turns out to be a refugee who's struggling with English being their second language. It could be finding a cause that you wanna volunteer with, maybe at a soup kitchen, an English as a second language course, supporting young mums who are doing it tough. It could be sitting with your friend who's experiencing loss and being with them in the midst of that. So many things, both big and small, can be an act of compassion. Henry now and again says this, he says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, 
vulnerable with the vulnerable, powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. So what do we do in the face of human suffering, whether we see it on the news or hear about it in a podcast or talk about it with our friends or see it in our day-to-day lives? We ask God to help us be compassionate people. We ask God to show us how He feels about it and move with step with what He calls us to do in response to it. Knowing that as we do this, our world, our personal worlds and the world that we live in will be a more compassionate place. A place that's more reflective of the heart that God has for His people. One that is overflowing with compassion. And tonight I want us to create some time to reflect on this idea of being a compassionate people and to connect with our compassionate God. I'd love for you to just stand with your feet, stand with your feet, stand to your feet, probably with your knees. They're gonna help you stand up. I just invite you to let this song that we're gonna sing, it's called For The One, be kind of a prayer for you tonight. Some of you may know it, feel free to sing along, but for others of you, this may be a song that is just gonna give you the words to pray to God about maybe where your heart is at right now. Because the truth is that as we navigate a world that is full of suffering and pain, Some of us here will feel like we've been trying to be compassionate for so long that we feel like we've run out of it. Maybe your prayer tonight is just to ask God to re-energize your heart with a fresh compassion. Others of you here tonight might feel like that actually your way of coping with the suffering of others has been to harden your heart, to pretend like it's not there, to not feel it. And you wanna ask God to just soften your heart tonight. God, soften my heart to the pain of what's going on around it. Let it be alive and compassionate once again. Maybe for some of you, your prayer is that actually, God, would you break my heart for a cause here? Lord, I wanna wanna give my life. I wanna do something with my life that helps alleviate the suffering and pain of those in the world around me. What is the cause you're gonna break my heart for tonight? As I said, this song is like a prayer. I want you to pray it however that looks like for you. And whatever prayer that is for you, maybe you need to have your arms open to receive, maybe you need to get on your knees in a moment of just surrender, whatever it is, do what you need to do right now to ask God, our compassionate God, to do a work in your heart, to make it a compassionate heart, just like His. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that as we come and spend this time worshiping You, Lord, I pray that this song would be a prayer for our hearts, Lord, that we would give you our hearts, Lord, that you would do what it is that you wanna do amongst us. Re-energize our hearts, soften our hearts, break our hearts, but Lord, this time is yours. Let us reflect on who you are, and Lord, come and minister to us, do a work amongst us tonight. In your name we pray, amen. Let the team sing over you, let this be a prayer for you this evening. With kindness and compassion for the one The one in whom you loved and gave your son For humanity Increase my love Help me to love with open arms like you do Love that erases all the lights and sea.
was in the end where all your children so help me to love with open arms like you do a love that erases all the lines and sees the truth all that when they look in my eyes they would see
God, I pray that you would just help us to be people who would uh, just desire to live our lives in such a way that they would see you through us, Lord. Lord, whether it be through our smiles, Lord, whether it be through our actions, Lord, we pray that you would help us ultimately be compassionate people, people who let our hearts be touched by the pain of others, and Lord, to, to be people who then act to do something to alleviate it. And Lord, I pray that we would do this not because it's just the right thing to do, but because it's the thing that you call us to do. As we try and be more like you, Jesus, someone who walked and lived with such great compassion, as we try and emulate you, our Heavenly Father, the compassionate God. But I pray that we will be compassionate people. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here with us tonight. We pray that you have a great week. We'll see you here next Sunday. Enjoy the public holiday tomorrow. And uh, go the Panthers. Nah, just kidding. <laughs> see you next week. We hope you've been blessed by this message. If you've made a decision to follow Christ, we would love to encourage you on your journey. Help us help you by going to gatewaybaptist.com.au and clicking on Get Connected.